Hey Jay, remember House of M? You mean the Scarlet Witch created alternate reality where mutants are the dominant class on Earth? Of course I do, Miles. Did they ever explain how mutants came to be in power there? Or was it just kind of one of those this-is-how-it's-always-been warps, like Age of X? Oh no, there was actual continuity. See, Magneto ended up in charge after uncovering and taking down an international anti-mutant conspiracy led by... Senator Kelly? Think bigger. Cameron Hodge. Think realer? Who exists in both the Marvel and real universes and is that big of a deal? Richard Nixon. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 322 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to, I don't know, some X-Men. Because we're covering some X-Men. One thing I've noticed, now that we've basically merged our adjectiveless and uncanny coverage, is it feels like we're doing X-Men all the goddamn time, even though we're doing the exact same amount. And yet, at the same time, it feels like even less is happening. So I think that's just something that is the case in this era. Not with every book, but it does feel like a lot of books are just sort of passing time until Onslaught hits. Which is really sad, because if there's anything not worth putting your life on hold for, it's Onslaught. I'm going to pause for a moment here because we've had a couple of listeners get in touch with us, and I'm sure a number more feel the same way, to say that the pre-Onslaught era that we're in right now, around 95-96, is one of their favorite eras of X-Men. And so, even though we've said this before, I do want to stress once again, whatever your favorite X stuff is, that is totally legit and totally cool, and just because we like or don't like a thing, doesn't mean that we think you're wrong if you disagree. Like, a diversity of opinions about X-Men is one of the coolest things about X-Men fandom, so please, like the pre-Onslaught era, and like, I don't know, maybe email us and tell us why, and maybe that'll make us like it more. Yeah, I would actually really appreciate that, because if you find deep joy in Onslaught for non-ironic reasons, like... I'm impressed and a little bit in awe. Yeah, so for serious, like, obviously we're being honest that a lot of this stuff doesn't float our boat. Although, you know, a lot of stories are good, we just like the Excalibur stuff that we covered. But we also, as always, will try to find the positive, and we want to hear what you have to say about it. So get in the comments, or whatever. Well, I think one of the things that I'm really noticing as we're covering this era, and based on the way we're covering it, you know, focusing on different titles but rotating through them, is how uneven it is. Um... At the, at the same time as there, there's the, you know, the anticipation of the event spanning or line spanning event across titles, there's just there's very little in the way of tonal cohesion, which is fine. It's it's good to have a variety, but also just the, the quality is all over the place, even in individual titles. And it's like I could see this being, you know, someone someone coming in and just being like, yeah, this is my era, or yeah, you know, this is my least favorite, just based on the month they happened to pick up or remember best. That's a really good point, yeah. A lot of the titles in this era are almost Doctor Who-like in their quality and consistency. You know, the fact that you can have six issues in a row and they range from excellent to why am I reading this? Fewer quarries. Fewer quarries, yeah, that's true. Doctor Who did at least have a lot of quarries back in the day. Still got quite a few quarries. I mean, look, I, I broke my teeth on Doctor Who. Like, I, I, am, I am the kid of someone who was a fan back when you had to get bootleg tapes from a friend in the, in, in the UK. 
You broke your teeth on it. You should probably stop biting all those quarries. I mean, actually, possibly literally, because I've had I've had the a TARDIS piggy bank for literally my entire life, but... Okay, okay. Well, anyway, this isn't Doctor Who, although, come to think of it, old Captain Britain kind of was. This is X-Men, and today we're going to be covering a couple issues of Adjectiveless and one issue of Uncanny, all of which are written by Scott Lobdell, because with Fabian Nicieza having moved on from Marvel for the time being, Lobdell is very briefly running both X-Titles. Yep, that's happening. So we're going to start with the Adjectiveless issues, which are... Kind of an X-Men soap opera fill-in story, which is nice, and kind of an X-Baby story, which I was excited about before I read it, and then I was a little less excited. So this is coming at a time where everything is just kind of high stress and miserable, which I realize, okay, it's the X-Men that's kind of a default mode, but, but that's been a lot of what's happened since the Age of Apocalypse. We've had a lot of stuff that's specifically been kind of intense character dra- drama and personal reckonings. And let's talk about some of those specifics. Previously, on X-Men. Well, we've got Bishop, a mutant cop from the future stuck in the present, who was also stuck in the dystopian alternate reality called the Age of Apocalypse for decades before being shunted back to the main reality, and is now the only person who remembers that timeline. Of course, he also doesn't have any reason to believe it's real, and he's not just delusional. The solution? Clearly going to a sleazy strip casino with his frenemy Gambit. We'll get to that. Never let Gambit take you anywhere. Example two is Iceman, one of the original five X-Men. He's now twice had his body taken over and his powers used in ways he never thought possible. Now he's having a crisis of confidence about his own abilities, um, especially because, again, yeah, Emma Frost used his, his powers in ways that he had never conceived of, and he's just feeling really inadequate across the board. The solution? clearly shopping for kids' books with his buddy Jean Grey. We'll get to that, too. Now, they are not the only ex-entities having a hard time today. That's right, it could be worse. They could be artificially constructed, cutesy kid versions of themselves stuck in a vicious media-obsessed dimension. Like, say, the ex-babies who are exactly that in the Mojoverse, which is exactly that. Now, last time we saw the Mojoverse... Former X- X-Men Longshot and Dazzler had taken down the despotic ruler Mojo with help of local rebel Mojo 2, the sequel. Uh, so the X-Babies might be okay. The X-Babies we know were produced by Mojo 1, and we'll get to that as we're discussing them. And I think that's pretty much the backstory we need to dive into X-Men 46 and 47, respectively titled They're Back and Big Trouble in Little Italy. These issues are both written by Scott Lobdell and penciled by Andy Kubert. Issue 46 is inked by Cam Smith, and uh, 47 is inked by Cam Smith along with Jesse Delperdang, which is a great surname. And both issues are colored by Kevin Somers and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And on the cover, we have a trope that has been returned to time and time again. It's once again the cover of Giant Size X-Men number one, with the new characters bursting through the page and the old characters in the background looking on in horror. Are we allowed to give anyone else shit about this since we've also now done that at least a couple times? I mean, they started it. Valid point. I really enjoy that the baby Gambit who's bursting through the page on the cover instead of having playing cards in his hand that he's charging up has math flashcards. Clever. Um, I, I, I appreciate the general idea. I, I feel like in, in the mid to late 90s, they would definitely have been magic cards. Oh, that's a really good point. God, I played so much Magic the Gathering on the school bus. So much. 
So these these issues left me with two substantial impressions. The first of which is they're bad, and the second of which is that I really miss getting Schwigadel. I don't know what that is. So they are they are this amazing Italian pastry, um, which pertinently one can reliably get very good versions of in literally in in um, Manhattan. Oh, okay, gotcha. I've only really been to New York City for conventions. And I was going to say, and to visit you, but I think every time I visited you, it's been during a convention. And so I just see very limited portions of the city. Yeah, next time we are in the same place, either I'm going to drag you out there or I will pick some up and like bring them to wherever because they are stunningly good and bizarre and brilliant. Um, there's, they, they appear in an episode of Great British Bake Off in which everyone mispronounces them in a different way, which is kind of amazing. As someone who often mispronounces things, I am sympathetic. Well, and the name is not spelled phonetically if you're coming at it as, a, as primarily an Anglophone. It's spelled like um, S-F-O-G-L-I-A-T-E-L-L-E and pronounced Schwigadel. Okay. Yeah, I would have no idea where to start. Yeah, I mean, this is this is the part where where I entirely get lucky by having having Italian in laws. Um, Legit. So I, I I get to go in and 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 get the 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 you know customer credit of actually pronouncing it right. Well, we are here to talk about an ex baby's two parter rather than to eat delicious Italian pastries. Perhaps unfortunately, I mean, damn it! It's not that I'm mad about talking about comics. I just really want one of those pastries now. These issues are well, bef- yeah. Let's just talk about the ex babies to start with. So. The X-Babies originally were de-aged X-Men, and that storyline first hit in the Uncanny X-Men 1986 annual. But after the X-Men apparently died in Dallas, Mojo was worried about losing them to the Mojoverse in entertainment, so he made a new set of X-Babies from scratch. And of course, they were a parody of the Muppet Babies, who, before they had their own cartoon, first appeared in one of the live-action Muppet movies. Now... Those X-Babies, the, the X-Babies who had never been adult X-Men, debuted in another annual. They debuted in the backup story to the Uncanny X-Men 1988 annual. But what I really like is when they appeared the next year in the Excalibur Mojo Mayhem one-shot, written by Claremont with art by Alan Davis. That is one of my favorite single X-Men stories. I love it so much, and because of that, I was a big X-Babies fan. Unfortunately, I feel like they've they've never quite hit that height since. But these are those specific X-Babies. The X-Babies in this story are ones that Mojo created whole cloth. Although that said, as we'll find continues to be the case, their roster and looks have been updated to better reflect the X-Men of the time, of the 90s. Which makes perfect sense in the Mojoverse. Absolutely, yeah. I want to talk a little bit about the art here, because we've often said that you don't want to follow Alan Davis as an artist, and I think that's especially the case here with the X-Babies and the way Andy Hubert draws them. Alan Davis drew them as believable little kid versions of the X-Men, a little bit cartoony to reflect the fact that it's the Mojoverse and nothing's quite real, but mostly looking completely believable. This is Miles from the Future, and yes, yes, I know, I know, it wasn't Alan Davis that drew the X-Babies in Uncanny X-Men Annual Number 12 or Mojo Mayhem, it was Art Adams. Nonetheless, my point stands, Art Adams is also an artist that you never want to follow, because he's great. Hubert kinda draws them like creepy Cabbage Patch kids from a Saturday morning cartoon, and it is it just doesn't work for me. I, I don't think that level of... 
amusing, kidified expressiveness really comes through so much as them just looking like badly animated designs. Yeah, they're kind of the visual equivalent of adults trying to write how kids talk and just clearly never having interacted with an actual child. Or the way those really old paintings would portray baby Jesus as just like a 40-year-old man but tiny. Or the way baby Cable ended up looking a lot in X-Factor. Yeah, good point. I mean, as we mentioned many episodes ago, he's a messianic figure, so that kind of makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I I object to that less with the X-Babies than I would with other kid characters, because again, these are these are characters who were made in an entertainment template. Like, if anything, if any characters should look like children designed by focus group, it's they. At the same time, though, and this is more story than art, if they were made in an entertainment-obsessed world by entertainment-fixated people, I feel like they should be more entertaining, and I think that is the problem here. The X-Babies originally worked because, again, they were childlike reflections of the X-Men we knew and loved. Their personalities totally came through. And here they kind of don't. They just all seem like generic little kids. Like, I think the closest thing we really get to a personality trait among any of them is the fact that Cyclops and his over-the-top speech impediment uh, keeps having the kids run away. And that's not even a personality trait. That's just, like, a thing he does. Mostly because they are, you know, very much about to die in a lot of situations. It's, yeah, the kids don't really have personalities. They 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 feel they feel specifically like the watered down version of a thing you'd see in a quickly made made for tv cartoon movie actually yeah you know you're not wrong and i wonder i i don't think that was deliberate but i think that's a place where that retroactive read can also kind of imp- kind of improve what's actually happening in the issues i'll take it all right so they're not the only characters who who we've seen before, who are going to be returning for just this story arc. We're also going to see Gog and Gog and Magog. And we should definitely talk about who they are, especially since this story doesn't seem to fully understand that. Yeah, in Lobdell's dubious defense, previous stories they've been in haven't entirely understood that either. Okay, I don't entirely agree with that, because where they first appeared, the Longshot miniseries is one of my favorites, and so they make perfect sense to me, because I've read it like 500 times. So, okay. So, Gog and Gog and Magog, who are here referred to as Magog and Gog, irrespectively, they're two, I guess, soldiers, bounty hunters, specialists, whatever, that work for Mojo in the Mojoverse. They were sent after Longshot in the Longshot miniseries when he escaped to Earth. So, the older of the two, originally called Gog, here called Magog, is this big, beefy, red-skinned dude with a white mohawk, uh, who is one of the leaders of the army, he's clearly very competent, very vicious. His son, Gog Magog, is a reddish-brown, more wolf-like furry creature. He looks like a big, beefy, masculine version of Wolfsbane, in a way. In the Longshot miniseries, he disguised himself as Pup, this cute little weird thing that was Longshot's sidekick before eventually eating everything and betraying him. We saw them again in X-Men Annual Number 1, that's adjectiveless X-Men Annual, and they were pretty much consistent. They talked in this deliberate, old-timey way, they were kind of vicious but loyal to each other. Here, their names are reversed and partially removed, and they're just sort of generic Mojoverse denizens who use entertainment terminology to talk about everything. 
That's unfortunate. Now they're here, they're after the X-Babies who have fled the Mojoverse because they think in the wake of Mojo's cancellation, they're also going to be killed. Um, which is accurate. I mean, um, Gog and Magog are specifically after them to kill them. Um, they've, they've chased them there because they feel that they ought to be canceled as, as relics of the old reign. So the X-Men who were in New York at the time, Gambit, Bishop, Phoenix, and Iceman, and we'll get to what they're up to, show up and protect the kids from Gog and Magog until... Dazzler shows up. And the last time we saw Dazzler was in, I believe, X-Men Volume 2, number 11. She and Longshot were in the Mojoverse. They had just deposed Mojo, seemingly killed him, and were allied with Mojo 2, the sequel, who was going to be taking over while Longshot and Dazzler were raising the child that Dazzler was pregnant with. Now, from what we understand here, the Mojo 2 is still in power. They're still working closely with him um, or still in, in positions of you know, significant power within the current government. But Dazzler is no longer pregnant. I think this is one of those things that Lobdell was famous for where he would just throw out a plot thread and not really think about what he was going to do with it. And in fact, that one wouldn't be addressed until more than a decade later in Peter David's X-Factor, where we got this astonishingly complicated, delightfully so, retcon about the nature of Longshot and Shatterstar and Dazzler and how they were all related. It's a lot. It's totally a lot. But yeah, Dazzler offers to take the X-Babies in, saying, you know, they just need to have some supervision and not be out on their own, and she'll take care of them. Did this strike you as a kind of non-Dazzler thing to do, to be all maternal and stuff, that just never struck me as her personality. She was never very, well, responsible. Yeah, it was extremely weird, and it was very much a deus ex machina resolution. Dazzler ex machina. Yeah, and, and you know, that, that uh, Gog and Magog had just been been too zealous in their, their, their understanding of their orders, so everything is fine. I, I know it's not deliberate, but I was really expecting her to turn out to be like spiral or something something who was was basically just taking them away to erase them well and i think that's the thing the mojo verse should never be simple it should always betray you and you should always ultimately lose that's part of what makes it work as a setting i think and in fact when we next see it dazzler and longshot will once again be re rebelling against the standing order because it'll turn out that uh mojo 2 true to his name is also terrible yeah that's in this marvel fanfare two-parter that i dug up uh it's it's all right. It's got some good art. It's got, and I always like seeing Longshot. The thing that I found most interesting in this arc is an ongoing kind of background discussion about whether the X-Babies count as real people because Mojo made them. And we get, you know, we get some perspectives on this because Gene specifically is a telepath and, and mentions that, you know, at first they weren't because they were just, they were just creations, but now they have, they have, you know, the hallmarks of, of real people and real minds. And I, this bothers me so much because I mean, Longshot's also an artificially constructed person, and so were a lot of people in their world and lives. And this is shitty. Yeah, I mean, at a couple of points, the characters are trying to figure out that distinction so they can decide whether to put their necks out for these kids. But in the Marvel Universe, there are so many different ways to come into existence that I kind of feel like you have to just give everyone a blanket. Okay, you exist. Yeah, the question of personhood 
and and what it means to be an individual is obviously one we're seeing discussed a lot in the Dawn of X line because of the resurrection protocols. But at this point, it's just kind of being like it, it feels like arbitrary rulings are being made here um, without without a lot of, of, of system to it. And they work out well in this case, you know, they 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 end up weighing on the side that we both feel is the the only ethically correct side in this very hypothetical situation. But I think it's a place that's worth examining because the question of of what makes characters or individuals person enough to be worth risk or worth empathizing with is one that is profoundly important to what it means to be human in society. I completely agree, yeah. And I also wonder if this is really the best place to work with those themes, because the ex-babies are deeply silly, and I feel like you sort of have to lean into that. And so actually, Jay, I want to get your take on this. What makes an ex-baby story work versus not work? I mean, I, I think I think you nailed it with the silliness. I think these characters are not ones who can sustain serious plots well. I could see using them in that way, but you could really only do it once. Um, and it would definitely have to involve them going evil, not like horrible things happening to them. I feel like also we need more hijinks. I'm thinking back to all the previous X-Baby stories, especially Mojo Mayhem, and yeah, you have scary villains, but it's also just a bunch of goofy, cartoony shit happening. And here that's really not the case. Gog and Magog are like big, scary, violent people, you know, and that's sort of the whole deal. The other thing about the X-Baby stories we've seen before that have worked is that they've primarily been from the perspective of an adult who was trying to wrangle them. And that perspective... Sort of the ex-babies as a force of nature that this hapless person is kind of trying to keep up with is, I think, a big part of what made them work in those contexts. And we sort of get that here. I mean, the adult X-Men, I think we see things more from their perspective than from the kids. But I don't know. It just doesn't work as well as, say, seeing Kitty in over her head and surprised to actually be the adult in the situation in Mojo Mayhem. Yeah, well, and here... The adults kind of incidentally encounter them. None of them are really invested in, in them. None of them are really responsible for them in the ways that, that folks have been in prior stories. But mostly, I think, I mean, I think the ex-babies need to feel like the Muppet babies. They need to have sort of the same sense of fun, the same sense of existing for a context and scale that the, the real world just doesn't really offer. Side question, did you watch much Muppet Babies when you were a kid? I watched it enough to sort of have a sense of it as a show. It was pretty good. It was, yeah, it was surprisingly clever. And also, given that it brought in clips and referenced a bunch of movies I hadn't seen, like, that show is my first exposure to a ton of different media properties, and many of which I've only ever seen through the Muppet Babies. Nice, like what? Uh, Batteries Not Included is the one that always sticks in my head, because I had no idea what the hell was going on, but was intrigued. And just never got around to seeing the movie, even when I was, you know, old enough to go to the rental place on my own. That reminds me, I'm going to be an obnoxious shill for a moment and talk about how incredibly excited I am that The Muppet Show is coming to Disney+. Plus. Because I have... Finding places where I can consistently watch The Muppet Show has been an ongoing, like, repetitive chase for me. I have a handful of issues on DVD that were released, like, individually or one or two per volume... And my very favorite episode, 
I've never been able to consistently track down. Like I found it once briefly on YouTube before the, the copyright got cracked down on. That's the Vincent Price episode. Oh, that one is so good. I love that one. I love it so much. It's it's just it's it's amazing and it's beautiful and it's silly. And I, I guess oh, the Gene Kelly one's really good, too. Those are probably my, my two top ones, though. Good choices. Speaking of good choices, perhaps we should move on from the part of the story we didn't like to the part of the story that I at least did, which is what the grown-ups were up to. Right. I think the character and soap opera moments in this are exponentially better than the A-plot, um, and handled much, much better. So we've got Jean and Bobby as she's trying to pick up books for her niece and nephew, and he is trying to work out whether he's free of Emma's influence. And... I really, really like their conversation and resolutions. And as you you remarked in our notes, Miles, yeah, it's totally a coming out conversation. It's absolutely, completely, 100% like it's it's where the subtext is, is louder and bigger than the text. And I will certainly give Scott Lobdell credit for that. Like, I can't imagine he didn't know exactly what he was doing here. Oh, yeah. My, my understanding is that that he was among the folks who'd been campaigning for that that move for a very long time. Even the dialogue, though. Bobby's trying to explain to Jean that he's wondering if she can check out his brain and see if Emma's still there. Just figured, I guess. I mean, uh, you, um, being a telepath and all, you just sort of, I don't know, just, no? No? In the context of time-displaced teen Gene sort of pulling Bobby out of the closet in the Bendis run about a decade ago, this is especially interesting. Yeah, it's, it's such a telling moment, and the fact that when she makes him spell it out, he stumbles for a minute and then is like, well, I was just wondering about Emma's influence on me and whether she's still in my head. Kinda makes you wonder. You know what makes me wonder, though? Bobby's outfit. He's got this like gigantically oversized bomber jacket, these bright fuchsia pants, and this big ass wallet chain. Oh, Bobby. So I see Bobby's fashion choices as entirely independent from his sexual orientation. Bobby Drake at any given time dresses like someone trying to be cool and not quite getting it. One of the most endearing things about Iceman is how not cool he is despite his efforts, and I appreciate that. Well, and despite his powers. Yeah, although he would definitely make six to eight puns about it. So let's not just criticize Iceman. I want to criticize Jean here. Because, oh, for sure. yeah, the context in which they're hanging out in this bookstore is that she's trying to pick up some books as gifts for her nephew and niece who have been through hell. So yeah, something to distract them seems like a good idea. I mean, their mom got turned into a robot and they were kidnapped by an egg lady and it was a whole thing. But of the books piled up around her as she's trying to choose gifts for these, like, eight or so-year-olds, one of them is Potty Book? Come on, Gene, you raised a child! Like, did Nate in the future not get potty trained until he was ten? Why would you even have that as an option for these kids? So, I actually assume that this is Iceman's contribution, because he is there to help her. And it's very easy to imagine him just, like, looking through and being like, this one looks cute, this one's funny... And she's got, I mean, she's got so many books. Yeah, okay, that could be the case. And I do fully believe that Bobby Drake would still giggle at anything that said potty, so maybe that's why. Yeah, I could see him bringing it over and her being like, they're eight, and him being like, yeah, but bathrooms never stop being funny. Okay, okay, I feel like let's just make this canon, and then we'll both feel better about the whole thing. This does, 
I, I mean, I, I was looking at those, and this this does definitely tickle one of my single favorite things in comics, and definitely one of my favorite things about writing them, which is naming fictional books. Oh, yeah, just because so many of the books in this pile have their actual titles there, and some are real, but some are not. Yeah, and some of them are good, and some of them are bad, and I sort of wonder if it's if it's something that, that, that was in there, or in the script, or, or left to the artist being like a whole bunch of picture books, or, or what, um... Yeah, totally. Like, I know when you wrote your Cyclops one-shot, that was a very deliberate thing on your part. Oh, yeah, that's like half a page of script. I can just I can just stick that list in the Visual Companion or something, because it was it was a lot of fun to come up with. But those, are also, those were all also supposed to be, like, picture books about the Marvel Universe. So they were re- relevant. I, I think the, the book, the fictional book that I've come up with that I, I'm proudest of, though, is actually from an Adventure Time comic. And it is a coffee table book that Marceline has called So Many Orphans. Right, because she wants sad things. Yeah, because she's trying, she's trying to make herself sad so she can write the world's saddest song. Listeners, did you know that Jay has actually written Adventure Time comics? Like, official ones? It's true. Well, two of them in backup stories, but... Still, I'm impressed. I just still really like So Many Orphans. It's, it's one of those stupid jokes that I made and, will, and am like still giggling over years later because I'm just really kind of a simple person. We should always be our own best audiences. Speaking of someone who is their own best audience, Gambit. Also, he's hanging out with Bishop. So, Bishop has been having a stressful time, and for some reason, the X-Men's solution to that is to have the member of the team who stresses him out the most, and who has the worst judgment, take him out. Like, why would you entrust someone fragile to Gambit? I have an answer for that. Because you're Storm, and you know Gambit, and you know Bishop. Think about it. Storm is the only person who has actually seen Gambit be responsible, and she arguably knows Bishop better than anybody else on the X-Men, and I can see her figuring, okay, either they're both going to set themselves on fire, or this will get Bishop to lighten up a little. Man, and and where Gambit chooses to take him is also just such a bad choice. Like, I feel like it's not a place where Bishop could conceivably have fun. It's, it is... You remember the really terrible disco from Dazzler's first appearance? Oh, the evil disco, yeah. The evil disco. This feels like that, but more depressing. Like, it's it's an underground club that they have to get through through, like, an industrial entrance manned by a bunch of guys in weirdly spotless tuxedos, and it's basically a really bad underground casino and strip club. Well, and it seems all glitzy inside the club itself, which, fine, but the entryway is filthy and slimy and disgusting. Oh, that's speakeasy traditional, like you want to disguise the entryway. I guess so, but maybe don't put guys in fancy suits with AK-47s in there, then. I mean, there are some odd choices all around here. And again, it just doesn't seem like the kind of place you take Bishop if you want to show Bishop a good time. I I, I feel like he would... you, You maybe, like, take him to a really intense dance club i don't i don't know what you do with bishop maybe he'd like bowling i maybe i could actually see that working pretty well but before we move on i want to talk about weird entryways to unrelated locations jay did you ever go to the restaurant in sarasota the magic moment when you were a kid i did not so the magic moment was this magic themed restaurant And I don't really remember much about the restaurant itself. I'm sure it was fine. What I do remember is the entryway. You would open the front door, and there was just this mystical garden-looking place, you know, with mossy walls and really strange flowers and rock formations and a river running through it. 
And that was it. It just didn't seem to lead anywhere. But there was this sculpture of this rocky castle sort of in the middle on this natural pedestal, and you had to press down on the crystal ball at the top of it, and this entire wall would open up, and that's how you would get into the restaurant. There was no sign, there were no instructions, and when I was a kid, this was the coolest thing I had ever seen. No, see, when you talk about Sarasota and theme restaurants, what I always go back to is the 306th Bomb Group. Did you ever go there? No, you've told me about it, but I've never been there. Oh, fuck, it was so weird. It was, like, designed to look like a bombed-out bunker, and they had really good pastries. We went there for Easter breakfast once, which was a deeply, deeply surreal experience. Did they have that one Italian pastry that you mentioned earlier? I don't think so. Oh. Well, maybe they wouldn't have closed if they had. I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like, atmosphere-wise, it was it was not necessarily a, 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 a very good choice or series of good choices. I feel like a place like that would kill in Portland. I mean, you know, if it weren't during a pandemic when everything was closing. I don't know. I think, I think, I think it might be a little bit dark for Portland and also definitely very sprawly. That would be a problem. But, but Miles, I feel like your, your general disbelief about the entrance really just betrays your relative inexperience with going to illegal clubs. I must embarrassedly admit that I have very little experience with illegal clubs. Do more crimes, bro. Mm, do more crimes. I'll see what I can do. Anyway, back to New York and back to the specific illegal club that Gambit and Bishop are at. So... They're, they're not really so much partaking in the official events here as they are having some remarkably chill-for-their-subjects conversations about some of the things that have been coming between them for the last several months, years, while. Right, because as we know, the big mystery when Bishop came back to the present that he was wondering about was who within the X-Men betrayed them and killed them all before the future period that he grew up in. And for various reasons, he had a feeling it was Gambit. It's not. It's not. In fact, we'll get to who it actually was very, very soon. Hint, it's Onslaught. Which is to say Xavier. Which is to say, eh. But at this point, Bishop still thinks that, well, he thinks Gambit would be capable of that. And I do appreciate that when Gambit straight up asks him if he really thinks Gambit could be capable of something like that, Bishop says, hey, it's complicated, people do things for a lot of reasons— but yes. Yeah, what he basically says is, I believe that you don't think of yourself as capable of it, but I absolutely believe that you're still capable of it. And that's something that I really enjoy about Lucas Bishop, is that he's bluntly honest. He's never cruel about it, but he also doesn't bullshit people, and sometimes that means that he can get to the heart of a topic with them better than some of the other characters could. Yeah, yeah, that's something that I really enjoy about Bishop, and I really like this conversation because, again, they're both very honest. He also tells Gambit a bit about some aspects of his future that he hasn't really told people about, and that's specifically about The Witness. Exactly. There's a character called The Witness, so named because he was supposedly there for the Big X-Men betrayal, and The Witness's last name is LeBeau, the same as Gambit's last name. And it, it makes sense, too, that this is coming up now for Gambit, not just because he and Bishop are starting to talk, but also because of the stuff that's gone down with Rogue and the stuff that specifically she's pulled out of his head. 
Exactly. While the plot hasn't revealed what big dark thing Gambit did, we know there is one. And so Gambit being especially concerned at, about being seen as loyal to the X-Men makes a lot of sense. So we've got Gambit and Bishop finally kind of tentatively becoming friends. There's still not a lot of mutual trust, but there's much more in the way of camaraderie than we've seen between them before. I know, right? I mean, later on, when they're protecting the X-Babies, they both dramatically reveal themselves on top of a nearby church, Cajun-style, together. That's bonding. And in fact, Gambit and Bishop will eventually get their own miniseries together. Oh yeah, I always forget that that's a thing. I'm excited to read it. Right on. There are also two interludes, which I don't really want to go into in detail. One of them is Onslaught foreshadowing that gives me the distinct impression that nobody at Marvel actually knew or had decided what Onslaught was going to be yet. Right? Like, Senator Kelly and all these robo-soldier dudes head into a Sentinel factory, and everything's missing, and the word Onslaught is on all the screens, and that's the whole thing. So, I haven't really run my role-playing game at all during the pandemic, but I will admit that one of the things I sometimes do is exactly this. I'm like, I don't know, let's just do something ominous, and I just sort of pull it out of my ass and hope that nobody thinks about it too hard. This is that. Well, what I'm getting from this bit is that Onslaught may in fact be zero cool. Oh, shit. Is Johnny Lee Miller? Possibly, yes. That makes me like him more. Johnny Lee Miller would actually be a really interesting Charles Xavier. That's a good point. Not Onslaught, though. Well, I mean, if you did Onslaught within a story or that universe. Um, but yeah, like that's a bit of casting I could really, really see working. Okay, okay, zero, cool, as Professor X. I'm into this. Well, Sherlock Holmes is Professor X. And zero, cool. I mean, he'll always be zero, cool in our hearts. Damn right. The other interlude is focused on Magneto. Possibly Magneto? I don't know if this is supposed to be Magneto or not. That gets so, so complicated. And we'll get into that, in fact, in the next issue we're covering. Before that, though, maybe we should sort of go back and talk a little bit about what's been up with Magneto for the last few years, because it's a lot. Totally. So, after long stints as the greatest enemy of the X-Men and the headmaster of their school, Magneto, the master of magnetism, decided he was done with everyone's bullshit and fucked off to his space rock. We should all be so lucky. Unfortunately, his peace was interrupted by a group of mutants who showed up at his front space door and insisted he take them in as his followers. So these were the Acolytes, and they were mostly a lot of trouble. It wasn't long before Magneto found himself at war with humanity with his space rock destroyed and himself presumed dead. Months later, Magneto revealed himself to be alive by rudely interrupting the funeral of Colossus's little sister, Ilyana, and inviting worthy mutants to join him on his new space rock, Avalon, which was actually Cable's old space station with a Property of Magneto sticker stuck on the front door. It's a very Steve Zissou move. Totally. One of those acolytes, one of the folks who joined him on that space rock, was ultimately Colossus. Colossus was frustrated with Xavier's dream after, after having suffered an almost comically large number of tragedies. He basically had a, a several years that were just, just full, full on Jude the Obscure. So he went and joined Magneto in space, I think less because he believed in Magneto's philosophy than, in, than because he liked the idea of just kind of getting out and becoming a space monk for a while. 
Fair enough. He also helped take care of the Big M after Xavier got fed up with Magneto's assorted violent acts and erased his old friend's mind. And speaking of violent acts, Avalon was later attacked by the questionably named villain Holocaust, who destroyed the space station and scattered its inhabitants to various parts of the Earth below. This, incidentally, is Holocaust from the Age of Apocalypse, who fell through when that universe was destroyed. The Man Who Fell to Earth, 616. Although, come to think of it, I think The Man Who Fell to Earth was the name of the first X-Man story after Age of Apocalypse, so I guess they already thought of that. I mean, it's Marvel. It's basically raining men all the time. Hallelujah. Mmm, some more than others. Fair. Colossus and the still-vegetative Magneto found themselves in Antarctica, shortly after which Magneto vanished while Colossus wasn't looking. And that does indeed take us to Uncanny Number 327, Whispers on the Wind, written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Roger Cruz, inked by Tim Townsend and Al Milgram, colored by Steve Buccolato, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And this issue features exactly zero X-Men. It kind of reminds me of Uncanny Number 315, which was an issue focusing on the Acolytes and Colossus in space. Well... Yes and no, because that at least had more familiar characters. Here, the only character who looks familiar isn't really what he rem we remember him as. Exactly, because in that interlude we mentioned at the end of the last issue we talked about, we saw Magneto having fallen to Earth and waking up all muddy and bloody in someplace rural. In fact, he woke up in a Guatemalan field where a bunch of kids find what they assume is a corpse. It's not. It's not. And the kids, as he wakes up, scream, which summons a woman with a shotgun, which she points at him. And this guy, this probably Magneto, uses his magnetic powers to slam the woman into a wall by using the metal in her shotgun, after which he collapses. So... The woman with the shotgun is Sister Maria, who runs this orphanage, and she is our narrator. So many orphans. So many orphans. Now, S Sister Mar Maria is suspicious of this guy. She knows he's dangerous, but he's also clearly in need of help. So she takes him in, ties him to a bed, and nurses him back to health. And as far as we can tell, this is just straight-up Magneto. We know that Professor X wiped Magneto's mind. We know that he fell from space. This all lines up. Because when this guy wakes up, he's got almost no memory of who he was. We know that he speaks English. We know that he speaks German. We know that he's a little bit paranoid. Again, it all tracks. However, we get our first hint that this may not be the Magneto we know and love when he shaves for the first time and realizes that he looks around 20. And while Magneto has been de-aged before, and his, he's, he's younger than he chronologically should be based on his date of birth, he's not nearly that young. This really amused me that Magneto has now been de-aged twice in continuity. I mean, okay, spoiler, this isn't really Magneto, it'll turn out later to be a clone, but I think at this point he was intended to just be Magneto. So I think a lot of the reason for that is that you can't really separate Magneto from his origin as a Holocaust survivor. But if he just ages normally, he's super, super old by this point. And I get that, but at the same time, Professor X hasn't been de-aged, and he and Magneto are supposed to be peers. I mean, I guess there was that one time that he turned into an alien and his body exploded, so the Shi'ar made him a new one, but I never got the impression that that made him younger. Might have made him age less slowly. Maybe. I don't know. Comic books. 
So we now have a Magneto in his 20s with a new name because the kids have decided to call him Joseph, the kids who he's getting closer and closer to as he's getting closer and closer to Maria, helping out around the orphanage, using his beefy, beefy muscles and his magnetic powers. And I feel like before we get too much further, we should talk a little bit about amnesia. Because there's the way amnesia works in real life, and there's the way it works in, like, every single fictional story that features amnesia. You know, I was thinking about that here, and I just gave it a complete pass because it was telepath-induced amnesia, which I figure doesn't need to follow those rules. You know, that's a good point, but at the same time, I want to complain. Right on. Go for it. So there are two types of amnesia. There's retrograde amnesia, which is the one most people think about, which means you can't remember a certain portion of the past, or sometimes all of the past. And there's anterograde amnesia, which means you have trouble forming new memories. As I understand it, from my now decades-old bachelor's degree in psychology, which is uh, uh, gathering quite a few cobwebs and is a little rusty, having pure retrograde amnesia without any anterograde amnesia, so forgetting your past without also having problems with remembering things in the present, is exceptionally rare. But that's how fiction always freaking does it, which makes sense. I mean, if you can't remember your past, it can be mysterious. But if you can't remember your past and you keep having to introduce yourself and get it introduced to the people around you, then that distracts from the story the writer wants to tell. Is scale a factor in that at all? Because I know, for instance, that very, very limit, very temporarily limited retrograde amnesia is common in traumatic brain injuries. That is true, yes. But what we're seeing here, where Magneto remembers nothing of his past— the fact that that's the only symptom is a little improbable. But hey, like you said, it was telepathically induced, so that's just fine. Right. I, 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 again, I will, I will give this a pass where I don't normally, just because of the tele- telepathy factor. Something that interests me about the de-aging thing, though, is that when Magneto shaves, which, by the way, he shouldn't have, that beard was way better, even though it made him look like 60 years older than after he shaved— his hair is extremely long, way longer than when we saw him fall to Earth at the end of Adjectiveless number 47. And so the person he really, really looks like here is Magneto from the Age of Apocalypse, which is to say, Rogue's sexy boyfriend. And the leader of the X-Men and hero. And this seems like a narrative shortcut that has now been used twice, not just the de-aging part, but specifically de-aging Magneto as a way to make him less accountable for his previous crimes. We saw that brought up in court in Uncanny X-Men number 200. The reason he was let off the hook was that, well, he'd been aged down to a baby and had grown up again, thanks to a bondage Viking, and so therefore they couldn't try him for his past crimes when he was a mustache-twirling Silver Age villain. Right, and because because that degree of de-aging was essentially a death penalty. Right. And so here, I can't help but get the impression that Scott Lobdell or whoever in editorial came up with this plot line wanted to find a way to let Magneto off the hook for the legitimately terrible stuff he did during stories like Fatal Attractions. So so this is not not, not our, our, our standard funeral crash and skeleton ripping Magneto. No, no, he would never even think of flying into a funeral and yelling about mutant rights while everyone was grieving, and he will leave everyone's skeletons right where they are, thank you very much. It's funny because I think since his introduction, Joseph has more consistently been a villain than Magneto has. And that's the thing. So, this isn't really Magneto. This is really, it will later be revealed, a clone of Magneto created by one of Magneto's old henchmen that no one ever thought to mention. 
I love that people just make emergency backups. I mean, I wouldn't mind an emergency backup clone. I'm terrified of death. Are you kidding? That's how you get strife. Oh. Okay, good point. Maybe we should skip that. But that's really true. And in that way, Joseph, this clone of Magneto, reminds me a hell of a lot of Madeline Pryor. A clone of a character that we know and love, created to sort of give a fresh start to that character, and who was very sympathetic until they found out the truth and went evil. Because you're totally right. Joseph is really heroic right now, overall, we'll get to that, and will continue to be for a while, but once he figures out the truth, he goes full, full villain. Not very effectively, though. Uh, no. No, that's the thing with Joseph, is he he kind of sucks. Yeah, I feel like Madeline Pryor is just better than Joseph in every possible way, because also, although she looked like Jean, she was very much her own character initially. And Joseph isn't exactly. I mean, right now, we're led to believe that he's just Magneto DH without his memory, and that's completely believable. He seems like Magneto. Well, and he still has Magneto's procedural memory and language memory. Exactly. And he also has the sinking suspicion that he's done some terrible things in his past, and that's something that Maria comforts him about. She believes that everything happens for a reason, and that no one is beyond redemption. And she believes it kind of sexily around Joseph. I don't, I don't think, see, you read this scene as her coming on to him, and I absolutely don't. Like, I read this scene as the two of them having a moment of connection and him assuming that it's sexual. True, she does back off as they almost kiss, as she's saying that whatever happened in his past can be absolved. Well, and also that she's perfectly happy with her fellow, um, and she points to her cross necklace. But also, I think that this is a lot of a, the byproduct of the all-women-are-sexy-all-the-time art standard in comics I, I would say in this era, but it's unfortunately one that that ripple that continues to ripple through. Although I think it's less universal now than it was then, um, because I've learned to just ignore that. Fair like, enough. I, I read this and I look at the way that she's drawn, and I look at the way that things like like how her habit fits. I'm just like, oh yes, this is just how this artist draws women. So I don't see any of her standing like you know standing in pinuppy ways and leaning in as 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 her actually doing that so much as just like, this is the default representation, it's not actually supposed to mean anything. Okay, well, let's reframe. So, we have Eric Magnus Lenger, a.k.a. Max Eisenhardt, and we know that he's a very attractive gentleman. I mean, he is a silver fox, if there ever was one. Great hair. Great hair. It's, it's very long now, he's now much younger, he looks a lot like the sexpot Magneto from the Age of Apocalypse. So, my take is that he has just become incredibly libidinous by being de-aged and just trying to flirt with every adult around, and since she's the only one, he's focusing all of that on her? Right, that was basically what I said, that, you know, there that, that, that all of the it's-a-seduction moment is his perception. It's not anything she's doing or saying. Okay. Uh, it's probably for the best that he leaves at the end of the story and goes out to uh, a world with more than just one woman who has to deal with him. Somewhere there's a universe... Where Joseph doesn't go evil, but just sort of goes around corrupting nuns? Yeah, it's a classic romance novel trope. I mean, you know, the women of the cloth who have dedicated their lives to faith, being seduced one by one by the ex-supervillain who had his mind wiped and then well, got renamed his clone, Joseph. his clone. Well, that's the big secret, of course. That's what makes it even sexier. Does it? If you're into that kind of thing. 
Am I into that kind of thing? I don't think I'm into that kind of thing. Anyway. Anyway. After more bucolic and occasionally magnetic time passes, we meet another character, who Joseph doesn't immediately hit on, but I suspect would have eventually, who's this corrupt government official named Colonel Ramos. And Joseph promises that he's going to protect the kids and Maria from this guy. He knows this guy is nothing but trouble. Well, and this guy sees him use his powers. That's important. Exactly, because one day, Joseph comes back, all sweaty and sexy-like, to presumably attempt to sweat on Maria from his farm work, and finds that everybody's missing, the kids and Maria both, and the barn is burning. So that's a problem. And he correctly assumes that Ramos has, has taken all of these characters to get to him. So he... he 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 goes and, and finds and finds the colonel who says, Well, yeah, we'll let Maria and the kids go if you agree to work for me and use my powers to protect the, the local cartels from law enforcement. And Joseph basically says, Hell no, fuck you, you're gonna die. Where's everybody? It's pretty great. Like Ramos is smugly villain splaining and is just cut off mid-speech by Joseph wrapping him in barbed wire and throwing him into the air. I will only ask this once. Where? This reminds me a lot of a different story. This reminds me a lot of a part of Magneto's past, specifically when the villagers in the village he was in found out about his daughter Anya being a mutant and burned down his family house. Yes, absolutely. Right, because in that story... Magneto had this really happy life. And in fact, you can see part of the story in X-Men Apocalypse if you want to watch X-Men Apocalypse. But he can't have happiness. It's a comic and nobody can have happiness. So when Anya was killed, Magneto brutally slaughtered all of the villagers who killed her. And that cost him his relationship with his wife Magda, who was horrified and left him. And here... We see Joseph on the same path. He does, in fact, rescue Maria and rescue the kids. They have such faith and confidence that he'll be there. And when he shows up in his now clean fuchsia robe and tells them it's time to go home, it seems like everything's going to be okay. And I really like Maria's dialogue here as this happens. That may be the moment I'll remember always. When the word home stuck in his throat as if it may have been the first time he'd ever used it, or the first time in a long time that it meant anything to him, which only makes what happens next all the more tragic. Because as they leave to go home, as Joseph leads them back to the orphanage, they pass through wreckage and fires and mangled corpses, because Joseph did the exact same thing here that Magneto did when people dared to mess with his family way, way back in the day. And this is not specifically referenced. There's no little footnote saying, see the now classic X-Men number, whatever. I don't even know if it was intended, but it fits so well, and that's so much of what makes me love this story. The idea that even if he can escape everything, like Magneto did with Magda and Anya, everything will catch up with him, and that part of his nature that desire for revenge when he is wronged will come through. That turns this from just a random story about a guy who will turn out to be a clone that's been done a million times before 
to something that really tells us a big part of who Magneto, even if this isn't exactly Magneto, is. And I love that. Yeah, agreed. I think that's I think that's a really good touch. Um, I think also just having this be sort of a brief episode in his life works well and is 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 an interesting interesting i guess not exactly origin point but at least starting point for him right because it becomes clear that joseph can't stick around the kids are scared of him now it's just broken and so maria shows him her old time magazine from the silver age with the original x-men on it and says hey maybe you can find these folks and he sets off with with the magazine intending to do just that. So, obviously we have a great deal of Joseph stuff ahead of us. We have the reveal that Magne- the original Magneto is separate and still alive in Uncanny number 350. We have the Magneto War storyline. I gotta say, reading this issue, as much as it's a little silly to de-age Magneto a second time, I kind of wish Joseph had been the real Magneto. I mean, it would certainly make our jobs much easier. <laughs> well, that too, right? But... I don't know. The idea of this character wondering whether you can really start over, honestly, I think the time that's been done most effectively was not with Magneto, but was with Sabretooth. Because after the Axis story, where he got magically turned into a good guy, let's not worry too much about that, there was a great deal of reckoning with that. I think we referred to that a little bit in our Sabretooth episode recently. But that's a compelling concept. The idea of a character wondering whether their past crimes, even if those crimes were almost committed by a different person because they've changed so much, will always be a part of who they are. That's compelling. And to just turn Joseph into a budget Madeline Pryor and have him go all evil when he realizes the truth, that that seems like a cheat. It seems like a cop-out. Well, that's all the X-Men we have for you today, but you have something for us, namely questions. Probable cause, spelled C-A-W-S, which I feel the need to to specify because good name, asks on Twitter, How do you keep up with announced X titles? My comic shop does their best, but if I don't tell them a new title is coming, I don't get it, and I never know anymore. Wolverine and Cable were surprises. That's what the X-Men said, probable cause. (laughs) Right. So that's a really good question, because especially these days, with X-Men having such a resurgence, there are new titles all the goddamn time, especially if you include spin-offs, one-shots, miniseries, etc. So, Marvel issues solicitations every month for a couple months ahead of time. They'll basically say, hey, in this month, here's a list of all of the titles that we're doing, here are probably their covers, and for me, that's the best way to keep track of what's going to be coming out for a given month. Marvel tends to put their solicitations on the web about nine weeks ahead of time. So, for instance, I just updated my poll list today for what's coming out in April. We're recording this on January 21st. And as far as how to find that, you can follow your favorite comic site through an RSS feed or just by checking it or whatever. Or you can just do what I do, which is about three quarters of the way through a month, just every day or two, Google Marvel solicitations, name of month, 2021, or whatever. That's really handy. And once you do that, you can let your local comic shop know what you need. They can add it to your pull list. It's also helpful for them because you can get the titles as Marvel lists them, which is going to make ordering a little bit easier for them. Yeah, and you can get the the other identifying information from the listings because often those titles are inconsistent with um, in between between venues. Exactly. So if your local comic shop person doesn't know what you're talking about, then you can just copy-paste the listing from the solicitations if that's easier. Yeah, 
Now, those solicitations often also include the final order cutoff, which is the last date that comic shops can order the issue ahead of time and be guaranteed to receive it. Exactly. And one of the best ways you can support a book is to order it nice and early to make sure your comic shop orders it to increase the number of orders that happen. So for me, as soon as solicitations come out, I like to just tell my local comic shop exactly what I'm going to need right then, nice and early. I will say, too, that if you do this, if you set up a pull box um, for the folks who don't, you got to follow through because... Comics are non-returnable. Um, normally with a bookstore, like if you if you pre-order a novel and you never actually buy it, the bookstore can return it and, and be refunded. Um, they, they can return not unsold copies. Comic shops can't do that. So yeah, you gotta you gotta make sure to follow through and do your part in that ecosystem. Exactly. Earl of Lakes asks on Tumblr. If there was a My Hero Academia X-Men crossover, and the headmasters Xavier and Nezu had some sort of official meeting, do you think they would clash or harmonize? Um, I think they would mostly harmonize, because they're both kind of ruthless utilitarians who tend to get underestimated by their less-than-threatening external appearances. I keep hearing amazing things about this show, and also I keep hearing about its X-Men parallels, and I wish there were more time in the world. There are so many rad shows out there, and this is one of the ones I really want to see. It's really good. It's a lot of fun. We are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. We shall begin with our own headmaster of this podcast, the Angry Claremontian narrator. You've done all the reading, Abraham Reisman. You've checked all of the texts, gone through every permutation and possibility. You've interviewed sources, analyzed and synthesized and contextualized, checked every possible fact. But even you could never have considered the wave of chaos that Tyler Thorstrom could wreak on even the best laid plans. Guess you'd better revise that index. Again. I should note, by the way, that, that Abraham has a biography of Stan Lee coming out this year. Oh, neat. Um, and I'll, I'll link to the pre-order information for that in, in, in the visual companion to this episode, but I'm really looking forward to reading that. Uh, speaking of things to which we are all looking forward, the mic here goes to, uh, Sexy Joseph. You've been so kind to me since you found me, Half-A-Ring Circus. You helped clean off the surprising amount of space mud from my muscular body. You shared moments of quiet intensity with me as I moped about my forgotten dark past. You still gazed upon me favorably even when I got rid of my sexy beard for some reason. If I'm not overstepping, I'd like to make it up to you. Maybe we could find somewhere quiet and warm to share in one another, like a secret base hidden deep under a volcano in Antarctica. Where are these dark memories coming from? Who am I? Ah, Cy Beltran. I'm sorry to barge in on you like this. Me in this fuchsia robe that just barely covers my twice-de-aged form. You in the simple peasant's garb that so perfectly hugs your chiseled contours. But I'm lost in this world, and for some reason I feel so drawn to you, almost magnetically. If you're interested, perhaps we could connect somewhere private. How about a circus cart in low-earth orbit? Why? Why do I remember these things? And more specifically, why do I mainly remember them when I'm attempting to flirt? 
That is so not cool, fictionalized version of amnesia. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in New Fairfield, Connecticut in exile from Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com, or the clone of that link immediately next to it, who will only be revealed to be a clone much later. Next episode, it's Hawk Talk, but the X-Babies will return the week after that. And we're gonna explain the hell out of them. (laughs) ¶¶